we're starting to see the, these trends that, you know, when you look at them ind individually, they might not raise an eyebrow, but collectively, these are kind of indicating we're just in a new era for PLG. Now, you know, we debated a while, is this, a, you know, fun, is this something fundamentally different than PLG? Or is this, uh, is this more of an evolution? And for me, where I netted out is a lot of the same learnings about PLG apply, but now there are also new learnings that we have to take into account if we want to stay ahead of the pack and build that next generational company. So essentially the bar has been raised for what it means to really be PLG in this new era. Uh, we're calling it the age of connected work and really excited, you know, in the coming weeks here to share a new set of PLG principles um, to win in the age of connected work. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. This episode is brought to you by ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company building a more fact-driven world with consumer-grade search and AI-driven analytics. Build stickier product experiences by embedding ThoughtSpot Everywhere's interactive analytics interface directly into your data app or product. No more delayed release cycles or incremental UX improvements. ThoughtSpot Everywhere's developer-friendly platform replaces static dashboards with an interactive data experience in minutes, allowing users to intuitively dig into their data and trigger actions in their favorite business apps. Learn more and try ThoughtSpot for free today by visiting thoughtspot.com slash everywhere. Hey, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am extremely excited to welcome uh, Kyle Poyer today, who he is an operating partner at OpenView and is seen very largely by many people, including myself, as an expert on what drives a SaaS company's growth. Uh, he writes about all things product-led growth, pricing, benchmarks, and much, much more at his popular newsletter, Growth Unhinged, which we will include in the show notes today and which I do highly recommend. With that, uh, Kyle, welcome to the show. Where are you zooming in from? Thanks for having me on. I'm in sunny Boston. It's rare sunny to say Boston. that it's sunny here, so I've got to mention it when it is. <laughs> I feel the same way. We're the exact same in London, and anytime I have a chance to have sunshine, it's worth mentioning. So I'm right there with you. Um, okay, so we are so thrilled to have you on the show today, Kyle. I had reached out just because in many ways, um, there's a few voices out there in, in the world that are known and associated with PLG, and yours is certainly one of them. You've done a fantastic job both building up your own brand, but also of open views and your expertise in that area. Um, and we talked a little bit about uh, going deeper into, you know, where the whole PLG concept came from, because as you know, on uh, for the love of product, we like to talk about origin stories. We like to talk about learnings. Um, and for an audience who is entirely dedicated to product led, hearing the inside scoop is going to be super exciting. And I actually saw you had um, posted some super interesting content on this uh, recently. So maybe we can jump right into you know what drove you to to share that story. Uh, you know, I imagine there's lots of eager eager uh, ears out there, but give us a bit of um, background on, you know, why you decided to put it down there in such a nice consumable framework. You know, it's, uh, we'll appreciate the kind words and uh, for the product folks on the line, 
product-led growth is actually our product at OpenView. <laughs> so it's something that you know we helped uh, coin the term back in 2016, uh, driven by my partner colleague, Blake Bartlett. And then it really worked for the last several, several years on trying to put it on the map and build a community around what it actually means to embrace product-led growth. And I, I thought it would actually be helpful for folks because I know everyone tries to build a new category or tries to build something that ends up getting adopted. And, you know, I think just in uh, all fairness, uh, it's, it's a very hard and long journey. And for us, it took years before the term really took off and it uh, required us to really focus uh, as a firm around putting sort of all of our eggs in one basket rather than getting distracted. And, and it also required really a community partnership. And so while you know, we had a microphone, we could you know, share what we were seeing in our portfolio. Uh, the only way it actually uh, took off was having other people use it and, and put their own spin on it, bring in their own perspective. And so there can be a, a desire sometimes to keep you know, a product really tight-knit and close to you as the creator of it. But that actually really limits the amount of folks who, who use it. And so I uh, figured it would be helpful to kind of go uh, behind the scenes around both why product-led growth was kind of invented as a term, but then just the, the kind of fascinating history but, uh, behind how it took off and became kind of a household concept uh, nowadays in SaaS. I love the way that you think about it as in fact your product, right? And I think what would be really fun is to take a step back into time and talk about, you know, how it came about, like walk us through the personal experience, right? When when you and I were getting prepped for the show, you were telling me a little bit about, you know, being in a in a conference room and kind of you know, thrashing around and doing all those things that anyone, whether you're doing something as ambitious as category creation or just as, you know, difficult as product creation knows and understands. But um, I'd love to hear a bit about what those early days were like and what were the topics you guys were thinking about and what were the, the considerations you were making? Take us back. Absolutely. Well, it might even be worth going back to say 2014, 2015 timeframe uh, before that term, you know, wasn't even a term. And back then, you know, there was a really kind of standard set of advice around how to grow a software company. It was all around how to build a BDR team. Uh, it was about uh, a lot of inside sales, a lot about customer success, uh, subscription software pricing, and, you know, good, better, best packages. You know, you, it, the, the things that folks know about as like the kind of Salesforce model, the classic model of building a, a cloud company. And we started looking at companies in our portfolio uh, and elsewhere that just had a different approach. And so one of our early uh, PLG investments is a company called Datadog. And it, uh, OpenView actually, uh, you know, when OpenView was looking at the round, it's like Datadog is growing really fast, but doesn't have an outbound sales motion. And so that was even seen as an investment risk because they didn't have a way to kind of quote, spend money to make money. We didn't fully understand the concept of product as a, as a you know, marketing channel and as a way of you know, being your best sales rep. And so uh, it was our experience watching not only that success story, but many others uh, 
that said, hey, there's something else happening here. Many of these companies are outliers in the best possible sense. They're growing extremely quickly. Their customers love them. They have very efficient business models. And yet they're seen as doing something wrong or against, you know, the principles of how to build a software company. But, you know, these were the companies that are actually succeeding, you know, wildly succeeding in many cases. And so we wanted to, to double click, what are they doing differently? And also at the time, there was, you know, there was certainly talk about things like, hey, this company is a bottom-up company, or this is a freemium company. Uh, this company is kind of riding the wave of the consumerization of IT. Uh, but each of those were tactics. It wasn't a cohesive playbook around thinking of it as, you know, what if this is actually just a set of principles uh, that could be applied to, you know, both business contexts. And so that that encouraged us to say, hey, like, let's spend a lot of our time here. And we actually convened a working group in 2016 to write out, like, what are these PLG principles? And, uh, you know, what are the characteristics of these companies that are that are the outliers? And what should we call this thing that we're seeing uh, seeing in the market? And so that was a very fun time, but, you know, obviously also really challenging because, there were a lot of principles that were, you know, uh, to be determined. And even things like what should be the role of sales in a product-led growth company? Some folks like Atlassian were very anti-sales at the time. And kind of no sales was to Atlassian, but no software was to, to Salesforce. But then there were other companies that, you know, had these really interesting approaches to pairing self-service and sales to expand uh, enterprise accounts. And so uh, we had just so many debates about not only names, but also what were the core tenants, like what was required to be product-led, and then what were things that were optional or things that we could figure out later. It's, uh, it's interesting that one of the goals for that kind of war room was terminology and uh, nomen nomenclature, right? I think that is not something that people always take the time to actually name this topic, this concept. Why did you guys feel that was important for you to do? Well, for us, it helped really crystallize like what was at the essence of what we were trying to say. Although I do have to, I do have to say we didn't end up coming up with the name by committee. So, you know, group of folks came up with probably a hundred plus names in total, uh, including names like user focused go-to-market strategy. Now that was a, a mouthful. Uh, but what ended up working best was actually uh, my partner calling Blake again would he would just start using terms in emails to founders that he trusted uh, or he'd you know if he was going on a podcast he'd try out a name or try out a new principle it's almost like stand-up comedy like uh, improvisation and just like a stand-up goes to tons of open mics at mics and you know checks out hey How's the audience responding to this joke? And you know, what if I tell it a different way? What if I use a different punchline? Uh, they they really hone that based on the audience reaction, audience feedback. That's what we had to do to pick a name that would really work. So we had a you know so, uh, a, a narrow list of that the best candidates that we thought represented what we were talking about. But we wanted something that people would viscerally understand what we meant, um, and that they could kind of see themselves in. They were like, oh yeah, this describes the kind of company I'm building. And without you know, being deeply uh, resonant with that audience, I don't think we would have picked a name that was able to have as much success as product and growth has had. So the way that you've described the war room, um, it sounds pretty fun for anyone who likes 
creating and, um, and, and things like that. And this audience, that's a lot of people on it, but were there low points of that journey? Like, were there parts that felt difficult uh, or was it pretty fun? Like, what was the, what was the kind of the attitude um, that happened throughout that process? Well, uh, I, I mean, I think in that creating journey, it was, it was certainly a lot of fun because we were talking to really amazing companies. Uh, we were really in kind of ideation mode. I think the low point actually came, we're in 2017 timeframe. So we had spent 2016 trying to figure out what this was. Our initial content was about that. Really, even anyone at the firm that was going to speak at an event, uh, just started, you know, trying to talk about PLG whenever they had the opportunity. Uh, but then, when you started getting into, you know, especially the mid to late 2017, fatigue started to kick in. Like we had been talking about this thing for a long time. We were the only ones talking about it. it was like, how much really is there to it? Like we've really talked about the same principles like over and over again, just in different ways. And so I think that, you know. For me, as someone that loves to create um, and loves new ideas, the challenge was really in the consistency and the, the focus, and especially not seeing the immediate results. I mean, certainly, if you looked on Google uh, at that time, we had really the entire first page of Google, and felt felt you know super proud of ourselves for that. Uh, but then no one else was using it externally. It certainly had not broken through to the mainstream yet. And it can be challenging to spend, you know, six months to a year or more than that, uh, writing and talking about something that's just not breaking through, especially when there's other topics that, you know, were breaking through, right? And so hard to uh, maintain that discipline. One other kind of small thing, Folks might have even seen this. We debated endlessly about whether there should be a hyphen in product-led growth. Uh, and we've actually gone back and forth between both multiple times, but that was another low point, just the nitty gritty of hyphen or no hyphen. <laughs> this couldn't be more timely. I was uh, talking with a few people yesterday about how product naming is hard and you know the fact that it's difficult for them is okay and how you might be stuck in like the minutia of things but um oftentimes you know it's worth that work so i think hearing that you guys have struggled with a hyphen or not to hyphen uh it's it's going to be assuring for people out there um so when you talk about product-led growth today more from your content perspective um oftentimes the success cases that you show have that beautiful hockey stick right um growth when do you feel like you know it went from that pain of like talking, talking, talking about it. No one's getting excited. No one's getting it to suddenly, okay, wait, it's starting to be picked up and adopted. And like, when did that start to happen and and how did that feel? Well, in uh, 2018 to 2019 period, uh, we had really decided as a firm, like we had to commit to category creation. So it couldn't be a side project. It couldn't be part of someone's time. Like we needed to go big or go home. And so we decided you know, every event that we had was going to focus on product-led growth. Any uh, our, our podcast, the Build podcast, was pretty general about how to build a software company at that time. And so we said, this is going to be explicitly, you know, just about product-led growth as well. Uh, we were even going to track uh, for a number of executives that we introduced into our portfolio, how many of those folks were from 
companies that we, we would consider to be product led. So really every, everyone at the firm had a role to play. And it was at that time that we really did start to see it break through in the market as well. One of the signals was we started seeing it pop up from people that we didn't know. So it wasn't people, you know, that we were already close with that were, you know, um, showing us some goodwill. Uh, it was people that were uh, were totally unaffiliated with, hadn't even necessarily been to our events. Uh, and one was a company called Apptrinsic, which is now Gainsight Product Experience. Their homepage of their uh, for their product was actually all about product-led growth. And we were like, this is super cool. Like, not only is this a term, but companies are kind of creating their own product categories based on this term. Um, or uh, someone by the name of Wes Bush, uh, who had an agency called Traffic as Currency at the time. He started teaching courses to people around how to do PLG. He now has since turned his uh, agency into a, an exclusive kind of product-led growth agency. But we didn't know Wes at the time. And so uh, those, uh, I think we also saw meetups, even in international countries, where people would have a you know, Romania product-led growth meetup. And so when we saw that start to happen, that gave us a lot of conviction that, hey, this is really taking off. It's becoming uh, something that people are really feeling ownership in and they're starting to build kind of PLG communities uh, wherever they are. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was actually thinking about the definition. So obviously West Bush is known for having kind of a very strict definition of what PLG is. How similar is that to where how you guys were defining it in those early days and how much evolution has happened over time, would you say? So initially, I think that the uh, broadest possible definition and the one that we started with was just that uh, it's instances where you're using your product uh, as part of customer acquisition, uh, expansion, and retention. And the idea was actually that it could be applied to any company. So there wasn't even necessarily, I mean, there were certainly companies that would be PLG native or really kind of fully bought into a product-led strategy. But the idea was a more of a dimmer switch rather than an on or off switch. And that we thought just about any company could apply PLG principles to delivering a better customer experience, something that was more scalable and really efficient. Uh, because once it was built, you could just kind of repeat that experience, whether it was to uh, you know one customer or thousands of customers. Uh, and I think that over time, we started to try to really hone in on being much more specific around product-led growth and some of the, the principles of you know, what it actually meant to be fully adopting product-led growth. Because I think that the general framing was actually, it was too inclusive, right? That because it could uh, be applied to just about any company, folks didn't really see themselves in it. Uh, they, well, they saw everyone in it. <laughs> and I think sometimes the more inclusive you are, uh, the more that can backfire because it doesn't really speak to one individual person. Uh, it's like, you know, you identify as a human or as a person, right? But, you know, I might identify much more strongly as someone who's male or LGBT, or, you know, you have these uh, categories that exclude, but they also really draw folks in. Uh, and so for, for us, we started to think about, well, a lot of this is that end users are becoming more important constituents in software buying. And so in some cases, the end user is the buyer, but in a lot of cases, it's just uh, end users are empowered to go 
find out products to help them with their workflow. They try them out. They start sharing them with their colleagues. And then they start advocating for those products among their bosses. And C-level folks don't have time to evaluate software vendors all the time. Like the, the days of, you know, year-long evaluation processes and, you know, procurement and negotiation processes start to go out the window. If there's already a product that your team is using, they like it, it has a fair price, uh, you know, why not just deepen your relationship with that company? And so we really saw this end user element as uh, a key kind of part of what separated these companies. And uh and it also kind of applied to so many different aspects of PLG. Like you're really obsessive about that user experience and time to value. And so that's part of being user focused rather than just kind of an executive or buyer focused where your pricing model, you know, has to lead with delivering value to that user in a self-service manner before you capture value. So things like a freemium or free trial experience are important. So we started to really get, I think, more specific around how to do PLG that would mean that we uh, were probably, uh, you know, glossing over certain companies that uh, might have a harder time adopting an end user focused strategy. But I think it meant that it was much more prescriptive and, and folks could understand how to actually apply these principles to build a software business. How I, were those changes where you kind of got more focused and got more um, I guess a bit more exclusive in terms of what your definition was more refined. Did those usually follow kind of learnings where you thought, okay, wait, we had kind of made a bet that this would work and it didn't, um, or what fueled that kind of refinement? Cause a lot of times, you know, as you refine down, it's coming because we're like, okay, we tried that, that didn't work. That's, that's, you know, it needs, and sometimes like you said, it's just, we need to be more clear, but other times there's hypotheses that we make that then we learn actually that was wrong. And we update our, you know, our, our strategy, our, our hypothesis from there. How much did that play? Would you say? Well, the, so I think that for us, it was, again, based on trying to go out and speak to as many folks as possible at, at events uh, in different forums and see what, what landed. But it was also, we started to hear occasionally folks refer to themselves as product-led businesses just because they thought that they had built a really strong product and they weren't actually adopting some of these other principles that we think of as core to PLG. And so we saw PLG being like misused. <laughs> uh, like, you know, just about any technical founder could say that because they're, you know, technical and product minded, that it's a product led company. Uh, when the reality is they're not doing a lot of the things that are setting a foundation for really healthy product led kind of funnels and um, customer journeys. And so I think for us, the, uh, a big learning, at least maybe for me, was that we didn't want, we wanted to be really clear around in our head, you know, what does product led growth look like? And so that uh, people wouldn't, you know, just see it as something that seemed really, you know, really nice and aspirational and they saw themselves in, but that it actually led to like decisions and outcomes that uh, were the kinds of things we wanted to promote. Nice. It's a kind of a nice segue into one of the things that um, you, you've mentioned a little bit earlier today, which is, you know, you had to kind of make a decision on, was this going to be like an open view thing? Was this going to be like a community led thing? Um, and I would love you to talk a bit about that. Um, 
I think it's super interesting for people making decisions on product launches and go-to-market strategies. Um, but also when you think about category creation and think about how are you going to get the biggest kind of growth and scale. So walk us through like that. Were there competing voices in the rooms? Did people change their minds a lot? Like what was the process like? There were absolutely different perspectives. I mean, we, we would, you know, think about things like, hey, from our marketing standpoint, we wanted to have a really high share of voice in the category. And we wanted to make sure we had the number one placement on Google. We wanted folks to, you know, when they affiliated a, a VC firm with product-led growth, we wanted them to think about OpenView. And so all of those lead, lead you down the path of saying, hey, we're going to be the main voice. And, you know, we can bring other people onto our platform, but, you know, we're creating the platform to really uh, evangelize this term. But then, you know, I think that we did, frankly, go, go down that route for the first year or so. And while there were, you know, some wins, it wasn't really breaking through because it was an open view specific term. And I think that a realization that, that many of us had was that uh, for for any term to really take off or really for any concept to take off, you have to have a whole ecosystem of partners that are uh, talking about it in their own context, that are sharing the stories around how they built that, um, an ecosystem of partners that can help companies implement best practices if they're you know getting started from scratch. Earlier stage VCs have to help, you know, encourage the founders of their portfolio companies to build PLG first rather than building a traditional SaaS company. And so just in order for it to ever really break through and become mainstream, like by definition, you can't be, you can't have complete control over it. And so that was our, I think, our collective realization that even though, you know, our marketing team might be trying to, you know, go after things like share a voice. It was a, it was a good thing to have more folks um, talking about and, and writing about it, and you know it's a rising tide lifts all but lifts all boats, and so we didn't want to be you know overly prescriptive of hey we've got to be number one on Google if you know more people are searching for it and more people are talking about it that's ultimately a good thing uh, and that'll you know produce a better outcome for everyone involved. Nice. So as I reflect on what we've talked about so far today, when it comes to category creation, you've given two really good pieces of advice. Um, one is that this isn't, you know, a functional thing, right? It's everybody in the firm is committed to this and you're making hard decisions on things like, uh, you know, saying no to doing everything and instead really doubling down on doing some things. So examples you gave earlier was the podcast, for example, or um, each event was going to focus on it. And so then just now you also said, you know, kind of you need to create an ecosystem in order for it to break through and become mainstream. So two super valuable pieces of advice for someone trying to create a category. Anything else uh, advice you'd give to somebody who is uh, embarking on that uh, audacious uh, goal? Well, be patient. Uh, it takes a while for it to pay off. I think that uh, we saw last year, 2021, places called product-led growth, like the buzzword of 2021, and we're just like, well, it's not, you know, a new buzzword, but, you, you know, we'll take it. Uh, but really, it wasn't until probably, I wouldn't say, it, I would say it wasn't until last year when it really took off and you could see it used um, in the mainstream. 
I, another thing for us, though, that was was ultimately quite successful is that we would try to speak about the best practices of the companies that we really admired and really kind of co-market with them. So if we thought that, you know, an example would be maybe an Airtable or an, uh, a Webflow or uh, a Monday.com, like if we saw those companies as doing really interesting, innovative things, uh, we'd want to just tell the story of how they built their company and, you know, how they've optimized it over time. And for us, that was, you know, you know, partially to promote PLG best practices, but also um, the more people understand the role models and they have these sort of aspirational companies they can look up to and also see the specific things those companies did and how it wasn't, you know, set in stone. You know, they weren't automatically going to be achieving those results. They had to take certain actions or make certain decisions to do that. I think that really helped um, inspire folks to replicate that model and also, you know, help them wrap their head around what it meant to be PLG. And so I, I would... Uh, encourage folks to think about that too, is how do you bring in other influencers and other really successful examples that are kind of, that are trying to do the thing that you want to evangelize. And the more you talk about, you know, just what they're doing and, and how those are best practices, the less promotional it becomes and the more it's just trying to be helpful and add value to your audience. Love that. I love that. I, I know you're not trying to be promotional, but how do you think this whole thing is going from an ROI perspective for OpenView? Take yourself back to those early days. I mean, how well has this paid off? Is it considered, you know, a wild success internally? I have to imagine, but like, give us some thoughts on how you consider the ROI on this, um, how you would measure it. Um, yeah. It's a great question. It's something I think we still um, wrestle with. To me, it's hard to understand what would have happened if we hadn't embarked on this effort? But what I suspect is that you know, if you look at the amount of venture capital dollars, the amount of competitiveness in the market, uh, the amount of, of firms and companies that want to invest in fast-growing technology companies, it's so much greater than what it was five years ago. I mean, private equity firms are moving into venture. You've got hedge funds like Tiger that have aggressively moved into venture and even do series A, series B deals. Uh, and so I think for us, it helped us stand out in an increasingly competitive market. And I think that if we hadn't done something like this, we just wouldn't have that unique voice. We would just be uh, one of a, you know, one firm in a very competitive field. And so I, I think it's, it's important just in terms of overall um, kind of brand voice and differentiation. Now, it's hard to obviously put a finger on what's that ROI, uh, <laughs> but ultimately uh, there's, a, there's the opportunity cost of like what would have happened uh, had we not done this? And I suspect that we are you know, far better off as a firm because we embarked on this effort. Seems like a sensible uh, guess would be my 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 guess as well. Okay, so that takes us to where we are today. Um, what's next? You know, what do you see the future looking like, both for OpenView, for you, for PLG? Um, talk to us a little bit. You know, if you were to have a, a crystal ball, what would you see in it? You know, 
Well, uh, so, you know, it, it's good timing because I've actually been working with a couple of colleagues on another working group, uh, <laughs> just trying to put our heads together of, uh, as we look at the market, you know, yes, product-led growth has taken off. You know, when you see a lot of the successful companies that are going public, that are raising unicorn valuations, they're adopting PLG characteristics, but we're also starting to see some kind of nuances. Uh, things like, hey, oftentimes these are API first, hyper-connected products, right? Where the, the users of a product might be other products rather than, you know, human users. Um, or these companies are scaling with usage-based pricing. And so uh, they allow folks to start for free and then only pay as they see value, which is kind of a form of product-led growth, right? Because as people, as you invest in R&D, as, as you drive more product adoption, you naturally generate more revenue. But that's not something that we had you know, thought of as classic ELG back in, the, back in the early days. Or even this rise of uh, really innovative indirect monetization methods. So whether it's, you know, whether you want to look at companies like Ramp, which offer a suite of finance related tools, really give those away for free and then monetize on kind of payments and financial transactions um, or really any vertical software company. You could even look at Shopify, which now generates the majority of its revenue, not from software subscriptions, but from other services. If we live in a connected, you know, API first model, the lines are really blurring between software and non-software. People just expect kind of a connected workflow to solve their, you know, work-related problems. And so we're starting to see the these trends that, you know, when you look at them indi individually, they might not raise an eyebrow, but collectively these are kind of indicating we're just in a new era for PLG. Now, you know, we debated a while, is this a, you know, fun, is this something fundamentally different than PLG? Or is this, uh, is this more of an evolution? And for me, where I netted out is a lot of the same learnings about PLG apply, but now there are also new learnings that we have to take into account if we want to stay ahead of the pack and build that next generational company. So essentially the bar has been raised for what it means to really be PLG in this new era. Uh, we're calling it the age of connected work and really excited, you know, in the coming weeks here to share a new set of PLG principles uh, to win in the age of connected work. Nice. Oh, breaking news here. I like it. Um, yeah, I think uh, that really that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you give a few you, you talked about ramp um, and that's more on the, the pricing, the usage model. Can you give a few examples of more of the connected aspects though, as we said, um, not just API based, because I think that's a lot of people understand that, but like any good examples of companies who are really, they're driving their growth through that plug and play um, as their go-to-market, right? And that's what they're building for versus end users coming in. Absolutely. Well, you know, when we used to think about building products, we thought of it as a destination, right? And so if you were in HR, you'd go into Workday. If you were in Salesforce, you'd go, or if you were in sales, you'd go into Salesforce. Uh, it's fascinating to see uh, the rise of pro products that are just built natively in your workflow rather than forcing you to change your behavior. So I think a you know, uh, classic example is Grammarly, which is historically a Chrome extension, right? Where they realize, hey, most of the writing happens 
inside other applications. So you might be writing an email and then you're in, you know, you're in Gmail. You might be writing uh, in another software application. You might be uh, writing in a Word document or a Google document. Well, Grammarly automatically kind of lives wherever you're getting writing done and it helps you improve your writing. And uh, so instead of actually trying to, you know, sell as a next generation Microsoft Word, they're selling as a hyper-connected product. Uh, I'd even encourage folks to think about just like the workflow of meeting with a customer. And so before you might email back and forth with that potential customer, agree on a time, maybe uh, decide to meet in person. So drive out, you know, meet, meet that, per, uh, that person face-to-face, -face, take notes in your notebook, um, and then maybe send a follow-up note, uh, you know, maybe even mail it um, to that customer. Today, it's a fully connected workflow, right? And so the scheduling happens via Calendly. You just send someone your Calendly, like they schedule directly. You both get sent calendar invites and, you, and that calendar invite includes a Zoom link. When it comes time for the meeting, uh, you're both reminded about it and then you just hop on the Zoom. Uh, you probably have Gong if you're a sales rep. So that meeting gets recorded and transcribed in Gong so people can review it later or you can align on action items. That uh, meeting might even get synced to Salesforce so that Salesforce knows that it happened because it was on your calendar and booked through Calendly. Uh, you might uh, put together a follow-up email and then you're using Grammarly to improve your writing in that follow-up email or maybe even a, uh, an email automation product to, uh, to automate that follow-up. And so now it's just this technology-driven kind of connected workflow where everything is digital. Um, there's a lot of automation, but also, you know, personalization and it's sort of human plus machine. But also if any of the pieces of that connected workflow break, we're kind of literally left in the dark and, and don't know what to do. Uh, and so it's a, just a very different user experience. And uh, I think the, the final thing I would say is there are also an increasing number of products uh, that make it easier to connect other products, even if they don't natively integrate. And so I think of Zapier as a classic example. There's a, there's a ton of them, whether you look at uh, MuleSoft, Trey, uh, Mercado, that, you know, I think with Zapier, uh, this was one of my first exposures to like these connected products. We had a type form where someone would uh, share their contact details. And then we want to just send that to HubSpot rather than downloading it from Typeform, uploading it uh, as a, an Excel spreadsheet, doing that once a week. We were just like, can't we just sync Typeform to HubSpot? Well, you can with Zapier and an individual can do that with you know, low-code, no-code tooling. Um, and it's just super easy to connect those products. And I think with, with Zapier, literally connects hundreds of apps to one another across lots of different workflows that you might have as a user. And so as, we're, as we get comfortable with the Zapier approach, kind of ex expect that to just be how our products work together. Like we don't even want to have to go into a Zapier to connect them. Uh, we expect it to just work out of the box. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for covering that. I was curious how you would think about those kind of automation platforms and if they counted in your uh, in in this kind of categorization that you're doing or not so i think that's fascinating um okay well then switching to you uh you know it seems like you've had a tremendous amount of success and during your time at ov and 
Um, you know, for those people who are out there and follow you and really appreciate your content, you know, tell us a little bit about you and what's, uh, what's exciting in the future from your perspective. What are you trying to do? What's your big, uh, your big next thing? Um, give us some outside of, of course, you know, closing on your house and, and, and decorating it as we talked about <laughs> in the, in the waiting room. <laughs> that is a big project. Uh, <laughs> well, so it, you know, what my team does at OpenView uh, is we work with our portfolio companies on really anything related to growth and go to market strategy. And uh, a lot of, you know, what we write about externally are really taking questions that we get from founders or their leadership teams and just trying to study them, go learn from what other companies are doing, and then we'll anonymize that and kind of share that back out as a as a blog post, as a as an upcoming benchmark report, uh, you name it. And so, for me, what that's just a, a constant focus for our team is staying on top of, you know, what are founders thinking about, uh, what are their struggles when it comes to building a software company or adopting DLG, and just trying to learn from what other companies are doing. I think for me, one other thing that just, one of those emerging areas um, is around usage-based pricing. And so mentioned this briefly earlier, but we used to think about SaaS as synonymous with charging on a subscription basis. And a lot of times we charge, you know, annually a year up front. uh, And then, you know, maybe we had a sales rep go close those deals. They got compensated based on the committed booking. They handed off the deal to customer success to go manage the renewal. In a usage-based model, software really acts a lot more like a utility. Uh, you can use it really how you want. Uh, you can scale it up and down, kind of on demand. You can potentially churn any time by just you know no longer using the product. And uh, for a software company that wants to sell based on uh, on, a, on a usage basis it kind of requires rethinking like all of the operating assumptions around how you uh, build and scale this kind of business. And so I've been fascinated by this topic over the last year and continue to be. There's so many questions unanswered, whether it's uh, what's the org structure look like for a a usage-based company? Uh, How should they compensate the sales team? Should sales stay with customers uh, post-sale or not? Uh, There's just so many interesting questions uh, that that'll continue to be a major focus of mine in the next six to 12 months. Well, I can speak personally. We'll be following along. We switched to a usage-based pricing model last year. And uh, all those types of questions that you mentioned, we are firsthand dealing with. So keep the good content coming. (laughs) (laughs) Scary, Um, but exciting. I, you know, I, I, I was one of the big pitchers for it. And it's because it's so easy to explain to a customer that they're only going to pay us when they get value. And we're going to share in that value. Like, it just seems very simple. Uh, but as you've just said, there's lots of complexities to actually implementing that. And that's the stuff that I think, you know, I, I can speak as one of the readers of your content. Um, we always appreciate because you do you do a very nice job of kind of framing some of those challenges and how different companies are solving it. So on behalf of all your listeners, I say thank you. Um, with that, let's switch to my favorite question of every show. Uh, we like to ask everyone who comes on if there was a museum that was dedicated to the world's most important products. What do you think should be in that uh, museum and why? And it's 
you know, the pre-qualifier is it doesn't have to be the most successful product in the world, right? Um, it can be something that taught us a lot and we've learned from, but do you have any uh, vote for what should be in that museum? Oh, that's a, <laughs> that is a great question. I was, I'd have to include Calendly in there. I mean, they're one of our portfolio companies at OpenView. So, you know, I uh, very much love Calendly. I think it, what it taught me at least was that, I guess, first off, that consumer products or products that feel like a B2C products uh, can actually really seamlessly grow from an individual user to a team to all of a sudden an entire company is using a product. And so this idea of essentially like the blurred lines between what does B2C and what does B2B mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're all just uh, people and we're, not, we're kind of switching off between being at work and being not at work, <laughs> but we expect the same quality of kind of user experience that we have in our personal lives, in our working lives. And so I'd say, at least for me, I learned so much uh, from observing and you know being a small part of Calendly's journey uh, and and uh, it helped me kind of rethink just what is a you know successful business specific product look like and then I guess for me I also think Zapier uh, and the reason why I just keep going back to Zapier is that is really how they've, well, so first off, they bootstrapped the company until like a very impressive ARR milestone. And so just their, the product performance is, is incredible. I think it's the tip of the spear of this very connected uh, age that we're living in now. And this idea that there should be a connected workflow across all modern software products as opposed to thinking about software products as siloed um, and things that we go log into. And I think just the other thing with Zapier is that when we used to think about like product distribution or marketing, it was like, all right, we've got to be seen as the number one hit if someone searches for app to app integration platform or like integration platform as a service. But with Zapier, the way they get found is that people actually just search for the thing that they're trying to do. So you're saying, or I might say, hey, I want to sync a Typeform contact into HubSpot. Well, Zapier has landing pages for that. Um, and for every, not only app-to-app -app integration they have, but every workflow that you might be trying to do. And so people discover Zapier in their moment of need uh, around the specific thing that they're trying to do, rather than going and discovering the category that Zapier operates in. And so I think for me, that was another learning is that there's actually a, a thing of product-led marketing um, and it's much more user-centric and it's in some ways decentralized because it's being found in the context of what your user is trying to do, not force them to try to think about what your product itself does. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels with the allowing them to try before they buy by just find when they need type of thing, right? So um, I like that a lot. Cool. Well, those are two really good companies um, and products, I would say, to put out there. And we appreciate you joining us today, Kyle. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again. And uh, we'll keep an eye on that content, okay? Thanks for having me on. This is fun. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product. 